Hello and welcome to Folklore of the Universe. This is the podcast that's all about the universe and all the folklore that lives inside of it. Because that's how that works, right? I'm your host, Kyle, and welcome to episode 3. I don't really have anything else to talk about for the introduction, so we're just going to jump right into it. So this day, week, this episode, uh, I've got two stories. I've got an Irish one and an Arabian one. Like most folklore, Irish ones have been passed down through oral tradition for a long time before they were actually recorded and written down. But the Irish had a really interesting system of quality control, where when people gathered to tell stories, everyone would tell them, and if there were any discrepancies between different people's ver- you know, versions of the stories, then everyone would recite theirs, and they'd all vote on which one was the proper one, and that'd be the one that everyone would have to tell. So a lot of these stories have remained consistent for a very, very long time. So let's get started. This first story is called The Fairy's Revenge. The fairies have a great objection to the fairy wraths, where they meet at night, being built upon by mortal man. A farmer called Johnston, having plenty of money, bought some land and chose two beautiful green spots to build a house on, the very spot the fairies loved best. The neighbors warned him that it was a fairy wrath, but he laughed and never minded, for he was from the north and looked at such things as mere old wives' tales. So he built the house and made it beautiful to live in, and no people in the country were so well off as the Johnstons, so that the people said the farmer must have found a pot of gold in the fairy wrath. But the fairies were all the time plotting how they could punish the farmer for taking away their dancing ground, and for cutting down the hawthorn bush where they held their revels when the moon was full. And one day, when the cows were milking, a little old woman in a blue cloak came to Mrs. Johnston and asked her for a porringer of milk. "'Go away!' said the mistress of the house. You shall have no milk from me. I'll have no tramps coming about my place. And she told the farm servants to chase her away. Some time after, the best and finest of the cows sickened and gave no milk, and lost her horns and teeth and finally died. Then one day, as Mrs. Johnson was sitting spinning flax in the parlor, the same little woman in the blue cloak suddenly stood before her. Your maids are baking cakes in the kitchen, she said. Give me some off the griddle to carry away with me. "'Go out of this!' cried the farmer's wife angrily. "'You are a wicked old wretch. You've poisoned my best cow!' And she bade the farm servants to drive her off with sticks. Now the Johnstons had one only child, a beautiful bright boy, as strong as a young colt, and as full of life and merriment. But soon after this he began to grow queer and strange, and was disturbed in his sleep, for said the fairies came around him at night and pinched him and beat him, and some sat on his chest and he could neither breathe nor move. And they told him they would never leave him in peace until he promised to give them a supper every night of a griddle cake and a porringer of milk. So to soothe the child, the mother had these things laid every night on a table beside his bed, and in the morning they were gone. But still the child pined away, and his eyes got a strange wild look, as if he saw nothing near or around him, only something far, far away that troubled his spirit. And when they asked him what ailed him, he said the fairies carried him away to the hills every night, where he danced and danced with them till the morning, when they brought him back and laid him again in his bed. At last the farmer and his wife were at their wit's end from grief and despair, for the child was pining away before their eyes, and they could do nothing for to help him. One night he cried out in great agony, Mother, mother, send for the priest to take away the fairies, for they are killing me, they are here on my chest crushing me to death. And his eyes were wild with terror. Now the farmer and his wife believed in no fairies and in no priest, but to soothe the child they did as he asked and sent for the priest, who prayed over him and sprinkled him with holy water. The poor little fellow seemed calmer as the priest prayed, and he said the fairies were leaving him and going away, and then he sank into a quiet sleep. 
but when he woke in the morning, he told his parents that he had a beautiful dream, and he was walking in a lovely garden with the angels, and he knew it was heaven, and that he would be there before night, for the angels told him they would come for him. Then they watched by the sick child all through the night, for they saw the fever was still on him, but hoped a change would come before the morning, for he now slept quite calmly with a smile on his lips. But just as the clock struck midnight, he awoke and sat up, and when his mother put her arms around him weeping, he whispered to her, The angels are here, mother. Then he sank back, and he so died. Now after this calamity, the farmer never held up his head. He ceased to mind his farm, and the crops went to ruin and the cattle died. And finally, before a year and a day were over, he was laid in the grave by the side of his little son. The land passed into other hands, and as no one would live in the house, it was pulled down. No one either would plant on the wrath, so the grass grew again all over it, green and beautiful. The fairies danced there once more in the moonlight as they used to do in the old time, free and happy, and thus the evil spell was broken forevermore. But the people would have nothing to do with the childless mother, so she went away back to her own people, a broken-hearted, miserable woman, awarding to all who had aroused the vengeance of the fairies by interfering with her ancient rights and possessions and privileges. The End So first, let's talk about fairies in Irish folklore, because they really are fascinating entities. First off, they don't like being called fairies at all. They prefer being called, referred to as the good people, which is the traditional way of doing it without getting cursed by them. What they actually are has changed, hasn't always been the same. Uh, In pre-Christian Ireland, they were considered to be the old gods and these old nature spirits. Once Christianity was introduced to Ireland, they were adapted to fit that. One common interpretation of the good people post-Christianity is that they were angels who refused to take part in the war between God and Lucifer. So whereas the angels who stayed with God stayed in heaven, the angels who went with Lucifer were cast down to hell, the ones who remained neutral were sent down to live on earth for the rest of their lives, and those became the good people. They are seen as fairly erratic entities. They could help you or they could curse the shit out of you. And this sometimes lines up with how you treat them, so if you're nice to them, they'll treat you well and reward you. If, like in this story, you offend them or insult them, then they will curse the shit out of you. But it doesn't always line up this way. Sometimes they're just in a bad mood and will set out to cause trouble. Which is honestly totally fair because, you know, people do that too. You know, like people, like, they haven't had their coffee in the morning, they're in a bad mood... And they're just all grouchy. So, you know, the good people are like that too. So if you want to avoid their wrath, then just leave out little bits of coffee for them. That'll calm them right down. And who knows, maybe they'll reward you with some magic treasure. Or, Or not. Or they'll just curse you anyway. As we've seen from this story, the good people like to live out in the wilderness and wild places. And they hold their own festivals and gatherings in certain places which are considered to be highly magical areas. For instance, this story mentions the fairy wrath. Wraths in Ireland are these old earthenwork forts you can still find dotting the landscape that were made way, way, way back long ago. You know, back in, like, proper far, like Stonehenge times. And like Stonehenge, you know, they've got these very old magical aura around them if you go see one, which explains why people would say that magical entities like the good people would gather there and hold their festivals there and why people would hold these wraths with a lot of reverence. So one aspect of the story is to not disturb the old wraths, to preserve them, and not antagonize the good people. Another aspect is hospitality. We see that the family gets especially cursed after rejecting the old woman, 
who comes up asking for food and drink. The motif of a stranger asking you for something and, you know, if you refuse them, you get cursed super bad. If you help them, you get super rewarded is a very common thing across many, many cultures. Because hospitality was a very important thing in ancient times. And honestly, you know, still is. Like, if someone comes over and they're like, hey, can I get a glass of water? You're like, nah, you don't get any water. And that's just kind of like a dick move, you know? So hospitality is an important thing. And that's what a lot of these stories are there to reinforce. Also, I just remembered that I should probably tell you how to spell wrath because it's not how you'd think. It's spelled R-A-T-H. So if you want to look it up, there you go. But that's about all for this story. Going to move on now. We will be coming back to Irish stories quite a bit because they are my favorite. So look forward to that. We will have plenty more talk about the good people and other Irish stories and other entities that appear in them like the Sidhi and the Puka and all that great stuff and the Maros. So yeah, look forward to that. But now we're going to move on to our Arabian folk story. So this one comes from 1001 Arabian Nights. And that is a collection of 1,001 different stories from all over that have all collected up in Arabia. And those are all bound together by the story of Scheherazade. And because stories, you know, move across cultures when they interact, and because the Middle East is, you know, in the middle, it's got contact with a lot of different places and always had, then a lot of the stories in 1,001 Nights have flowed from, you know, from Arabia itself, but also from India, from Iran, from the Mediterranean... So a whole bunch of different stories and ideas all ended up mixing together. So it's a very, very cool collection. And the story we're going to do today from it is called The Tale of the Hunchback. Once upon a time, in the city of Basra, a tailor and his wife went out seeking entertainment. They came upon a little man, a hunchback, who proved to be so amusing, they invited him home as their guest for supper. The hunchback happily accepted, and once they were home, the tailor's wife prepared a marvelous meal. As the hunchback was eating, he tried to make the couple laugh by sticking an enormous piece of fish into his mouth. Alas, in that fish was a huge, sharp fish bone. When the hunchback swallowed, the bone stuck in his throat, and a moment later, he appeared to have choked to death. "'Woe is us!' cried the tailor. "'What shall we do?' His wife said at once, "'Come along!' And she wraps the hunchback in her shawls and carried him out of the house. The tailor trundled along behind her, and his wife cried, "'Step away! My poor child has smallpox! We must get to the doctor's house!' Everyone ran away when they heard the cries, for they did not want to become ill. When the couple reached the doctor's house, the servant girl let them inside. The wife said, Give your master the silver coin and tell him to come see my child. While the girl ran to fetch the doctor, the tailor propped the hunchback's body up at the bottom of the stairs, and the tailor and his wife ran away. The doctor, coin in hand, ran downstairs to care for his new patient. Alas, he hurried so fast and the stairway was so dark, he tripped and fell. At the bottom of the stairs, he toppled the hunchback. Oh my, he cried when he discovered that the hunchback had no pulse. I've killed my patient. Then he ran to his wife to tell her the tale. We'll toss the body into our neighbor's yard, and we shall not be blamed, she said. They carried the body into their neighbor, the steward's garden, and propped him up against the wall that led into the kitchen. Now the steward was forever chasing and beating the cats and dogs, who, he was convinced, stole his better. This night, when he returned home and lighted his candle, he was startled to see a man standing at his back door. Aha! He cried at the sight. To think all this time I blamed the animals when it was you, a common thief. He lifted the mallet he carried and struck a blow upon the hunchback's chest. The hunchback fell to the ground. When the steward saw that he was dead, he cried out in despair, A curse upon my butter. Then he quickly lifted the hunchback and carried him away through the deserted streets until he reached the marketplace. In a dark alley, he leaned the hunchback up against a wall and ran away. 
Soon afterward, the king's broker passed by on his way to the baths. Earlier that week, someone had stolen the broker's turban. When turned the corner and spied a man leaning against the wall, he thought the man was wearing his turban. The broker raised his arm and let out a cry, You'll not steal my turban again, and struck a blow upon the hunchback's chest. Just then the watchman appeared, and seeing one man beating another, he ran to stop the fight. When he discovered the hunchback was dead, he hauled the broker to the governor and accused him of murder. The governor announced he must hang for his crime. The gallows were set up in the heart of the city, and the executioner prepared to hang the broker. But just as the rope was being tightened around the broker's neck, the steward pushed his way through the crowds. Do not hang him. I killed the hunchback. And he told the tale of striking a deadly blow in his garden. Hang the steward, the governor said. But at that moment, the doctor ran to the gallows and cried, Another innocent must not die on my account. And he told his tale of killing his patient by accident. Hang the doctor, said the governor. But the tailor ran to the gallows and shouted, No, I am to blame. And he told the tale of the fishbone. Upon hearing this story, a barber who stood in the crowd pushed his way to the gallows and said, I humbly ask if I may examine the hunchback's body. The governor commanded that the body be laid before him. Barber knelt over the hunchback and then he smiled. He drew some medicines from his pocket and rubs the hunchback's neck. Then using his pincers, he drew the fishbone from the man's throat and the hunchback's knees stretched and opened his eyes. You see, the barber cried, he's not dead after all. Everyone who watched was amazed and filled admiration for the barber. When the king heard the whole tale, he ordered that it be inscribed on parchment and letters of gold. He asked of his court, Have you ever heard a story more amazing than this tale of the hunchback? Well, of course they had, but you'll have to wait until another day to hear those stories. The End So the first thing we should cover with this story is the context of the frame story that goes around it, the tale of Scheherazade. So what that is, is once upon a time, as is typical, there is this king who caught his wife cheating on him, so he lost his shit, killed her, then vowed that every day he would marry someone new and then kill her in the next morning so that they'd never have a chance of being unfaithful towards him. So he did this for a while, till they eventually ended up marrying the vizier, or his advisor's daughter, uh, Scheherazade. And what she did was she started telling a story, and timed it so that when dawn came, she wasn't done yet. She was, you know, just before the ending. So the king obviously really wanted to know how it ended, so he decided not to kill her that day, and leave her alive and kill her the next morning after. And the next night, she finished the story, but then started a second one and did the same thing over and over for a thousand and one nights, hence the name. Until eventually, the king realized that he had fallen in love with her and decided not to kill her. So that's why we've got the ending of the story the way it is. That's you know, sort of hinting at a next story that's even better. You know, sort of like a teaser trailer, don't kill me story, promise premiere thing. Which honestly is... A way cooler way to make a collection of stories than what the Brothers Grimm did and just, you know, list them one after another in a book. So onto this story itself. This is quite a fun, you know, comedy of errors type one. And definitely about probably 58% of your daily dosage of shenanigans are up in here. So it's a good amount. You know, it's quite a humorous story that ultimately ends up pretty good. You know, happy ending and all that, which you don't always find in folk stories. Usually they're pretty pretty Quentin Tarantino-y, you know, dark and gritty. So this is a nice one. Now, one thing you may be wondering is, why is a barber pulling fish bones out of people's mouths? And that's because back in olden times, uh, barbers didn't just cut hair. They also did minor surgeries. Like, you know, bloodletting was a pretty common sport back then, a sport medical procedure practicum thing. 
They would also do some dental work, like removing teeth if they became infected. So they were well-rounded and useful people, which is why they're often held sort of prominent roles in these stories. Moral-wise, there's a couple of things here. The first big one is cut your food. You know, don't eat food in two big bites, because otherwise you might choke and, you know, just get passed around like a dead body, which isn't great. You know, it's not a place you really want to be. Like, if you get brought back by a barber, that's a good meditation, but it doesn't always end up that way, so chew your food. Uh, also, if you do murder somebody, you know, don't just foist it off on someone else. Either, you know, take the blame for it or dump the body in the woods. Don't, don't throw it into your neighbor's house or anything like that. That's honestly just bad manners. But I'm afraid that is all we've got time for this week. So a slightly shorter episode, you know, sorry about that, but next week it might be longer, and it might not, who knows, we'll see. But I hope you've enjoyed episode 3, if you have, please, you know, share it around to all your friends and enemies and family members and all of that. You know, leave a rating or review, any feedback helps me know what to do better on this. And yeah, that's all, I'll see you next week, bye!